If you want to see the full video interviews of this podcast, visit yahoonews.com or find us on social media at Yahoo News. I'm Zainab Selby. Welcome to the Through Her Eyes podcast, where I'll explore current news from a woman's perspective. We see the world through her truth, through her defiance, through her grit. This is Through Her Eyes. It has been more than a century since American women gained the right to vote. And it has taken this long for more than 100 women to be elected to U.S. Congress at one time. And the women's wave that's energizing Congress has a new look. Women of all different ethnicities, ages, and backgrounds. Assalamu alaikum. Today, I'm speaking with Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota. She's now making history as one of the first women to be elected to U.S. Congress and the first woman to wear a headscarf on the House floor. Join me as we try to understand identity, politics, and the vision for this new Congress through Congresswoman Ilhan Omar's eyes. So we are here at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. Okay. I have Your portrait is going to be here one day. <laughs> really? How has been your first impression of Washington, D.C.? That things are only complicated if we let them be. 1726 for 29. In 2016, this documentary film chronicled Ilhan Omar's primary race for state representative. She defeated a 44-year Democratic incumbent. After just two years as a state representative, Omar ran again in the Democratic primary, this time for federal office. She won with a record turnout and shared every step of her journey to Washington, D.C. on social media. My whole family, like, all over the world or all over the U.S., is coming to see me get sworn in. You have won with the highest turnaround in, in, in your district in 20, more than 20 years. How do you explain what happened? I mean, you, 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 you have to view my election with a different lens. I think that's where the explanation is. In my primary race, I ran uh, in a six-way primary. And most of the people who have not paid attention to how I got elected would make an assumption that this must be about Somalis and Muslims and all of that. But the reality is that there was another Somali candidate in the race, so, so that wasn't really it. There was also another black um, candidate. So there was three of us who were black and two of us who were Somali, and one of them was male. And so for, for me to be successful in that race, we had to center people in, 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 in our politics and in our conversation. And so I won my primary with nearly 50% of the votes and eventually ended up winning with 78% um, of, of the votes and, and outperforming you know, 428 districts uh, in, in this country. Congresswoman Omar and her freshman class have been in office for less than a month. But they've already been making waves. It's Mitch McConnell who refuses to call a vote on it. Protesting the government shutdown on behalf of workers. 
calling for a Green New Deal, an economic stimulus that addresses climate change and social inequality, and demanding for increases on taxes to the wealthy. So let's talk about some of the policies you stand for in America. Let's talk about first canceling student debts. Mm -hmm. You know, this is about $1.4 trillion. But the big question is, how can we, how do we handle it financially, such radical solution? What are your answers for that? It's fascinating because we always only ask, how do we pay for um, programs that are going to have a positive impact on normal people's lives and not corporations? And so um, we recently had uh, a tax cut of $2.2 trillion. And so if we were serious about making sure that there was future for, for our young people, uh, that could be an investment that we could make. We could cancel out student debt. And it would pay for itself, actually, because we will have more young people who are buying homes. We're going to have more young people who are purchasing cars. And, you know, we, we did this tax cut um, and said that it was going to create more jobs, but it didn't. Talking about taxes, mm-hmm. um, because it has a role with the uh, new Green Deal. Yes, which does and Medicare have, for all, all of those and Medicare things for are all. going to I mean, how, again, how do you propose doing that on, an, on, a, on a very practical level? Because some of these critics are coming from the Democratic Party itself, yeah. not, you know, not only from the Republican Party. So there are a few things that we can do Um, One of them is that we could increase the taxes that people are paying um, who are the extremely wealthy in in our community. So 70%, 80%, we've had it as high as 90%. I'm also one that um, really looks at uh, the the defense budget that we have. That has increased nearly 50% uh, since 9-11. Um, and so most of the money that we have in there um, is much more than we spend on education, on health care. I mean, I think what picks up for a lot of people is mm-hmm. taxing the rich mm-hmm. up to 80, 90 percent or 70. Yeah. And, you know, one percent must pay it, their fair share. But even those who support that, mm-hmm. they say, good luck getting that. You know, I mean, how are you planning on on having this? negotiations or dialogue or bridge building to actually get that happening? Yeah, I mean, the influence of money in, in our politics is, is severe. And so a lot of us really have been working um, to limit the influence corporations um, and the uber wealthy have uh, on, on Congress. It's not about finding a colleague Um, who is a a Republican to agree on the issue, but it's about finding um, a Republican within society who agrees with that, and we have done that. But there's a good percentage of Americans that are also supportive of President Trump. And then you have the Democratic Party or some of the old establishment of the Democratic Party Mm -hmm. are worried Mm -hmm. of uh, progressive politics. They're worried that it may hurt Democrats in, in, in swing states in the upcoming election. Uh, what do you have to say to that? What I know right now is that when it comes to the agenda that the Democrats have, um, we are going to make sure that there is something getting done about student debt, that 
Medicare for all is on the agenda. Congresswoman Omar was born in Somalia, but after civil war ripped apart her home country, she spent four years in a refugee camp. She came to the U.S. when she was 12 years old. I know it must be frustrating that everyone wants to ask you about your personal life <laughs> uh, while you are a congresswoman, and yet your personal life actually do provide a lot of um, insights about the person that you are. I want to start by asking you about your life in Somalia. Mm -hmm. How was it like? Tell me about that time. Oh, my life in Somalia um, was amazing. I mean, I lived for the first eight years in, um, in a beautiful, blissful life. Uh, the Somalia that I was born in in the 80s was a very vibrant um, Somalia where, you know, my brothers and sisters were, we were happy. Um, I grew up in a very chaotic, unconventional home. My mom and dad uh, came from um, different sides of, of society and were not really supposed to meet and, and marry. What, what does that um, mean? My mom is ethnically Yemeni okay. Oh, okay. Um, and my dad is ethnically Somali. Okay. And Here you have a, an upper middle class right. family um, in Somalia and yet at a very young age you lose your mother mm -hmm. and you also lose your country. Mm -hmm and you encounter war, and you encounter displacement. How has that impacted you today? How you see the world today? Surprisingly, it makes me a very optimistic person. Very early on, I used to be confused about the, the strange transitions um, that our family found ourselves in. And my dad uh, and grandfather would always remind me that this morning, this day we woke up and didn't really have to determine um, the morning we would wake up in tomorrow. In other words, you have seen the hardship at a young age. Yeah. And, and you also seen the possibilities right. of becoming a congresswoman yeah. in America. I mean, I think to, to be born into such privileged life um, and to lose that uh, and, and to now also have opportunities that many of the young kids who were in that refugee camp with me will never experience. It's one that allows you to, um, to really be grateful. How was your first year in America? I mean, as an immigrant, my first year in America, I have to tell you, I mean, I hugged the pillow every night and cried. Yeah. I mean, I was overwhelmed with the speed. It was, it's just different for me, you know, right. and I missed home. Yeah. How was your first year in America? Oh, it was uh, torturous, um, <laughs> to be honest. I, like I said, you know, I grew up in a, in a household um, with, uh, grandparents and aunties and uncles and we already like you know had a large family um, of, of our own um, our, our house was beautifully chaotic and living in the refugee camp was also right like this open home mm -hmm. um, and and as a kid even even the struggles of living in that camp 
really didn't settle in my brain, right? So it, was, it was still a was child. The freedoms yeah, yeah. that I, I enjoyed yeah. more so than, yeah. um, than the challenges yeah. that, that I paid attention to. And so coming here, now being combined into a home, and most of my siblings were adults. And so as soon as they, they realized that they could um, seek life outside of Arlington, Virginia, they were on their way. So it was, it was the first time that I ended up living with just my dad and I in, an, in a one-bedroom apartment. Oh, that's um, different yeah, for anybody. It, it I was, mean, yeah. You know, bless his heart, my father um, had to also figure out how to help care for me, and I had to figure out how to help care for him. So we're in D.C. We landed, um, and I'm here with my dad. Are you going to cry tomorrow? <laughs> you are the first uh, woman of refugee uh, background of uh, wearing hijab and one of the first Muslim women. There's a lot of firsts in here. You know, for me, it's uh, how did how did your community, particularly in Minnesota, and particularly the Somali community, react? Well, I think there's a lot of pride. Um, you know, in 2016, two days before the election. Um, Trump came to Minnesota and used refugees in his speech as a, as a tool to, to divide our community. Here in Minnesota, you've seen firsthand the problems caused with faulty refugee vetting. They felt excited to now have a full response to say we don't only welcome refugees in Minnesota, but we send them to represent us in Congress. So I want to uh, talk about refugee issues in general, um, and, and particularly to you as well, because a lot of you're advocating for more refugees should enter in America. We are at a record low of 30,000 refugees allowed this year mm -hmm. compared to the last year of Obama's administration of 85,000 mm -hmm. refugees. Mm -hmm. Do you have any um, number in mind of what we should uh, allow in terms of entry to America? Yeah, I mean, I think our our quota should always be in, in reference to the, the number that is, that's out there in the world. I don't have a particular number in mind, but I know that we have the resources and the space um, to, to welcome 80 to 100, if not more. Well, let's talk about the positive contributions of refugees. The stereotype image is that there are people coming and taking our resources, yeah. you know? The reality is the refugees do stand up on their feet very fast and they right. contribute positively. Right. I don't know if people fully understand. These are people who don't even have a cent to their name who are coming in this country. And within a year, within two years, um, they have paid off whatever resources it took to get them here. Um, my family, there was eight of us when we arrived here, um, myself, my dad, and six of my siblings. And almost within a month of, of arriving, all, all of them were fully employed. I came at the age of 12, and within four years, I had a job. Um, and so by the time I was eligible to be a citizen, I was a tax-paying member of society um, at the age of 17. I'm establishing new vetting measures to keep radical Islamic terrorists out of the United States of America.
We don't want them here. The vetting process is a big discussion. The president is saying that they are like coming unvetted. There are all kinds of people coming in here. Can you comment about that? The, the vetting process is very rigorous. Um, I mean, you have people going through um, healthy screenings. There is screenings for, for age. Um, there, there are uh, many processes that take place within those years. I think, you know, my, my family um, went through a process of over two and a half years to, to get here. But we also know that immigrants are uh, two times less likely to commit a crime um, than their, their American-born counterparts. That's true. That's true. Now let's talk about Islam. Mm -hmm. I believe Islamophobia actually preceded President Trump. If you distill uh, Islamophobia, the essence of it, at least in America, mm -hmm. there were two reasons. Mm -hmm. One is Muslims are going to come to this country and they're going to change the constitution and impose Sharia. And the other one is that they're going to impose on all women to wear hijab. Uh -huh. Now you are a Muslim who are wearing hijab and actually at in the, in the Congress, you know, and who do impact, who can, you will impact policies. How do you answer such fear? Because it's there. Yeah, I mean, it's misplaced fear, and it's fear that's born out of ignorance. And so I oftentimes don't really like to give space to things that are not out of general curiosity. And a lot of people believe mm -hmm. uh, that Muslim women are forced to wear hijab. Right. Now, I'm a Muslim woman myself, yeah. Yeah. and I know that there's a diversity of women who choose to wear the hijab, women who cho don't choose to wear hijab, and right. there are women who wear it for political reasons. May I ask for the reason you decided to wear hijab? I mean, just to that, to that diversity, there are two women in Congress right now. One of them wears a hijab and the other doesn't. Um, and for me, it was... Uh, a choice that I made to have a visual, visual representation of, of my faith. I was uh, a teenager when 9-11 happened, and I really was uncomfortable with many members of our community feeling like they had to strip themselves of their identity in, in order to mitigate the, the violence and the fears that they were feeling. And I thought, you know, the best thing that I could do was to make sure that I was visually showing up in every aspect of society um, as a visible Muslim um, so that people can start to associate positive interactions with Muslims. So it almost had the opposite reaction um, that many, many Muslims had. You know, when I was younger, I grew up in, um, in a very secular um, Somalia, where it was almost a crime to wear hijab. And when I came to the United States, I would wear it once in a while. And the, the bullying that I got around my hijab almost didn't make any sense because most of the identities that I'd grown to be a sense of pride were now a sense of tension. And I was blessed to have a father who made me understand that there was nothing wrong with how I chose to show up in society. And he would always say, 
let you know let them deal with it. It's not it's not your problem. I'm going to use another tweet that Ilhan Omar put out from 2012, where she said, "Israel has hypnotized the world. May Allah awaken the people and help them see the evil doings of Israel." I want to talk about Israel mm -hmm. because it has been a point of uh, contention. How can America work productively towards a just and lasting peace between Israelis and Palestinians, in your opinion? By having an equal approach to dealing with both. Most of the things that have always been aggravating to me is that we have had uh, a policy that makes one superior to the other. And we mask it with a conversation that's about justice and a two-state solution when you have policies that clearly prioritize um, one over the other. Such as? Um, I mean, I, just our relationship really with uh, the Israeli government and the Israeli state. And so when I see Israel Institute um, law that, that recognizes it as a, as, a, as a Jewish state and does not recognize um, the other religions that are, that are living in it, and we still uphold it as a democracy in the Middle East, I almost chuckle because I know that if you know we 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 say we see that in in any other society we would criticize it we would call it out we do that to Iran we do that to any other place that sort of upholds its religion uh, and I see that now happening with Saudi Arabia and so I am aggravated truly um, in 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 those contradictions. Now you also, your critics, um, talk about, and your supporters, some of your supporters, not all, support, uh, talk about your support of the BDS movement, right. boycott, divest, sanctions mm -hmm. uh, on Israel. I've not only supported and called for boycott um, of, of Israel, but I've done that with Saudi Arabia. I've actually called for a boycott to Hajj in Saudi Arabia. In this tweet from last year, Congresswoman Omar called on Muslims to boycott Hajj the mandatory pilgrimage to Mecca in Saudi Arabia, one of the five tenets of Islam. That's a it big is, deal. That is a big deal. I mean, I, I am told by my father that is um, contrary to, to, to my Islamic belief to, to ask that of people. When you see uh, the kind of humanitarian crisis that the Saudi-led coalition is causing in, in Yemen, um, and you see the brutal murder of people like Khashoggi, or you hear about the beheadings that are taking place um, and the challenges that people have to basic human rights just to exist as themselves. That, I think, is a bigger part of my Muslim tenant uh, than, than that. That's, that's um, a big deal. That's yeah. That's every, yeah. And so, you know, there are, wow. there are uh, awful cartoons in Saudi Arabia calling me all kind of things. But what I know is that I need to look myself in the mirror and know that I am doing everything that I can to elevate injustice in the world. Here we go, you guys. Isra Adnan. David, I want to talk about girls okay. and women. Okay. Um, and I want to start with your daughter. We have to thank her for her Instagram, uh, you know, films and photos and all of that. 
How is this has... Isra or Ilwad with the old one? The, the older old one? one? The older the one who was behind the Instagram okay. uh, films, right? Yeah. How has her seeing you become a congresswoman impacted her dreams for the future? What I do know is that she has always had dreams that are bigger than the ones I've had for myself at her age. And I know, or at least can feel, that because I am able to live out dreams that I didn't even know I had, that her dreams might be a little more accessible to her um, today than they were when she made them first. Are you gonna be in Congress? No. I'm gonna be the president. Yeah, and we're gonna make sure that kids only have to go to school for one second. And last question, because Women's Month is Women's Month is uh, coming up, and March eighth is International Women's Day. Mm, that's and the day I arrived in the U.S. You it's did. Also my U.S. arrival anniversary. So, what do you want for women in America and internationally on that day? I want us to stop celebrating marginal wins. I want us to fully recognize our place in society and, and to own our power. In almost every society across this world, women are the majority in their communities. But we have gotten really comfortable and complacent in our inferiority in society. My only wish is for us to own our power recognize our power and to step into our power. When I say if this is a mountain, we're halfway yeah. up the mountain. We're not yet yeah. on top of the mountain. Yeah. So, and but, but how fast we get on top of that mountain depends on us recognizing our ability to get up there fast. Very true. Mm -hmm. And we can. And we can. And we will. Yes. <laughs> Congresswoman Omar, thank you so, so, so much. much it has you. been an honor. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Through Her Eyes. For more thought-provoking interviews, subscribe to our podcast. You can also watch the full video interviews on yahoonews.com.